1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour episode number 37, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, if you are new to the show, we come out every single Friday. Ravi and I go through the big stories that have been making the world of retro and tech throughout the week. And then, the second half of the show, that's where things really get exciting. We have on a special guest, someone who is really noteworthy in the history of video game development. And to be fair, I don't think they come much bigger than the guy we've got on this week. Yeah, I I, I spoke to him,
2: and I don't know wh- how he agreed to come on this show. You know, it's Scott Miller, who was
1: the founder of Apogee and 3D Realms. This is crazy. You pulled out the big guns on this week's show, right? Yeah, really, definitely. You? So... I mean, you're looking at the the games that he's been involved in, it pretty much reads like a who's who's list of those genre-defining games of like the late 80s and early 90s, even stuff like Wolfenstein 3D. Yeah, I remember playing on my mum's PC and being blown away on that. (laughs) Well, you can even trace, you know, every game these days is an FPS. That was really the granddaddy of the first-person
2: shooter genre, wasn't it, really? Yeah, and then a lot of innovation and development that happened with Duke Nukem. Yeah. And, oh God, Duke Nukem forever, dare I say.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we are going to get the story of the uh, painful development of Duke Nukem forever and what you thought of the game when it eventually came out and also a really exciting new title that he's working on today which is called rad rogers
2: yeah if you've ever played rough and tumble on the amiga or jazz jack rabbit or, yeah. or even conkers then this game's going to appeal to you <laughs> it's a very cheeky return to those old school kind of platformers isn't it so definitely yeah watch the trailer you might um Have to have some parental guidance on that.
1: (laughs) Strictly 18 and over only. (laughs) So uh, Scott's going to be on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Seriously hang around for this one. I think this is one of our best interviews we've ever done. Really excited for this. Now, we've just got to say a huge thank you as well to the fantastic Christopher Folds who's made a very generous donation to The Retro Hour this week. Yeah, a reoccurring donation, Dan. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that either. But, um, yeah, he's, so basically he's contributed to the show every month, which is awesome, Chris. Thank I you think so much. you so much. Press submit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, just in case you have, we have alerted him to that yeah. now. But um, Obviously, we have mentioned that we have got a little tip jar on the website, theretrohour.com. If you ever want to make a little donation, it all goes into the running costs of the show. And also... We're going to give something back this week as well. Yeah, we're going to do our first giveaway, and this is thanks to Bitmap Books. Now, this is our Sam Dyer, who we had on a couple of months ago. Um, he's a guy that does these really, really attractive visual compendium books.
2: Yeah, and, you know, these were the... We were calling them the coffee table kind of gaming books that you could have all these beautiful zoomed-in pixelated images. They have... What do they have done? They've got interviews
1: and... Oh, there's all sorts. Well, I mean, the book that we're giving away now, um, thank you so much to Sam and the team at BitBat Books, they've actually given us two copies of the expanded edition. This is 476 pages. It's a hardback of the Commodore 64 visual compendium.
2: I I must admit, I had to rip the seal off one and have a look inside myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of them has been defiled, has (laughs) it, Ravi? But these are brand new books and... uh, they're presented so nicely as well. This is essentially a celebration of the visual style of the Commodore 64. Now, they cover like, you know, a lot of games and demos and that kind of stuff in there. It's actually over 100 titles mm. in this book. And they've got um, stuff like you know artwork throughout there by the likes of Oliver Frey, who is the artist on Zep 64. Oh, wow. Back in the day, they've also got interviews with Commodore 64 artists, a look at the demo scene, and even there's a little section in there showing new games that have come out in recent years for the Commodore 64 thus the expanded version absolutely so So, (laughs) we're going to run a comp what are the rules Dan right well we do have two copies of the book to give away so we thought you know we want, want this to appeal to the Commodore 64 heads so if you know your Commodore 64 games you should be able to identify the game that this song is taken from what is this game wait for the drop not the hardest competition in uh, in history, is no, it? No,
2: I, <laughs> I made uh, a kind of little compilation that we were going to do, and Dan couldn't get any of them, <laughs>
1: so... Yeah, I've been a Commodore 64 game of, like, well, 30 years, I couldn't get any of them, but, yeah, everyone should know this game.
2: Yeah. So, if you submit on the website on... The retrohour.com, we're going to have a form on the front page. Mm-hmm. So you guys can submit your answer there.
1: Yeah. So all you've got to do is nip onto our website, TheRetroHour.com. You'll see it right there on the front page. A little form. Fill your details in there. Give us the answer to the game that that song's taken from. And then we're going to run this, what, two weeks?
2: Two weeks, yeah. And then we will email you yeah, and also announce the winners on the show.
1: Absolutely. So we'll pick a winner at random from all the correct entries. Um, Competition closes on midnight October 1st. So you've got a fortnight to do this. Everything you need to know and all the rules and online entry are on the website, theretrohour.com. Good luck. Right, then, before we get into uh, Scott Miller, let's get into this week's news stories. Now, um... The N64's had quite a bit of exciting new hardware discovered recently.
2: Oh, yeah, with that um, DD drive, the PAL version and
1: stuff. Yeah, Yeah. that Metal Jesus found. He did that video on we were talking about. Well, there's been another patent discovered. Now, this was a device called the Multimedia Expansion Device. Oh, multimedia. That (laughs) word that we used to love in the 90s. It doesn't come much more 90s than multimedia, does it? But this is, um, it was just patents that Nintendo of America submitted. And um, someone on the forum has actually come across these on Assembler Games Forum, a guy called DS2. And he was looking through some, like, kind of long-forgotten patent documents. And he found this... um, It's an expansion device that sits on the bottom of the N64. And these are kind of just, like, hand-drawn pictures. So it doesn't really go into a lot of detail. But by the looks of the ports on here... It's quite a big expansion. It's about, you know, you're talking height-wise, it's about twice the height of the N64. (laughs) So you can
2: stack it up.
1: It looks like a stack system from the 90s, yeah. And on the back of it, they've kind of got some, like, detail of ports and stuff on there. So it looks like there's a a modem built into it.
2: Oh, yeah, because I'm just seeing the little Ethernet port here, actually.
1: Yeah, whether it's Ethernet or modem, I'm not sure, but there is definitely some kind of connectivity there as well. And I'm looking at it, and it kind of looks a bit like, I mean, you look at the front of this, there's a few buttons on it. I mean, there might just be, like, network activity lights, but... Maybe there's even like a CD-ROM drive or something in there it's as well. It's very
2: strange as well. They seem to say it's got lots of coax going into it. So maybe there's some kind of TV signals
1: being sent through there or some... Yeah, well, that was kind of some of the speculation on Reddit where I, where I first saw this. Some people were saying maybe it was um, going to be an association with like a, you know, a cable TV provider mm. to do like kind of you know on-demand kind of content and stuff there too. But I mean, some people have been saying you could never download games on this thing because back then you had like, you know, dial-up. But N64 games, I mean, the average cart was about 64 megabytes. So you probably it would take you about three hours to download a game, which isn't ridiculous. I mean, you look at like you know Xbox games now. I mean, yeah. I, I've updates that come down that are like twenty five gigabytes. You know what I mean? But but
2: also, if it had coax, maybe if they were sending it through the cable, yeah, it, it, it could be faster. You know,
1: I mean, obviously this device never came out, but I think it's kind of cool to look at you know ideas that Nintendo had for. The N64, because it was really a platform that um, it never really reached its full potential in terms of add-ons. I mean, they came up with lots of ideas for it, but nothing ever seems to fly in the world of add-ons, really, for Nintendo products. No,
2: and uh, even that RAM expansions (laughs) were massive, weren't they? I think the Rumble Pack was the biggest uh, add-on on on there.
1: It was, yeah. I got one last year, actually, at Play, I think, about £6 for it, in, in the box. Japanese writing on it as well, so it doesn't fit properly. I've been trying to get if I'm honest it's in the drawer for a year, but um, yeah, we'll link you if you want to check out these patents. They are, they are really interesting, actually. We'll stick those in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, being guys from Nottingham, we've talked about the National Video Game Arcade, um, which is you know kind of it put Nottingham's gaming on the map and made the news headlines a couple of years ago when it started. But yeah,
2: because it was the first kind of video game centre in the UK, so this is you know for everybody. And this was meant to bring, like, what, £2.5 million into Nottingham? Yeah, but it looks like they didn't make a profit and um, they actually ran out of cash. Now, we had a few
1: experiences going there. Well, I've never been. Dan's (laughs) never been. He's tried, but he's never been. Well, I know you've been there a few times. And, I mean, there's an article in our local paper, the Nottingham Post. um, It went into administration a couple of weeks ago. And... It turns out they you know, they went through all the money. It was £2.5 million to put this together as well. Mm. And they had like 50 staff working there as well. But I went along. I mean, I kind of work some weird hours. So often they have afternoons free, you know, maybe like 2 p.m. I might have a few hours free before I do other stuff. Yeah, great times to go and play games. And well, stuff, yeah. yeah. If I'm in town doing a bit of shopping, I've tried to get in here about three times. And, you know, I've made it into the foyer, <laughs> got into reception. <laughs> and be like, how much is a ticket? And they're like, oh, well, you can't come in today. I'm like, all right, we're not open today and there's something some other event on. And you look at the opening times and it seemed like they are only open like, what, two days a week for like four yeah, hours yeah. or something. It's, I, uh, and
2: I think they put a lot of effort into half terms in it yeah. and turning it into kind of a place where you could, parents could come in with their kids and then their kids could have a time. But they weren't engaging the older gamers. They yeah. weren't engaging the wider kind of gaming community. And hopefully now it's basically been, bought out by this uh, Nottingham Video Game Foundation, which seems to be made up from different companies around Nottingham and supporters of the NBA. So Sumo Digital were one. Epic as well. There's uh, Ian Livingstone, who is one of the big supporters. Playground Games involved as well. So they're going to be taking over the NBA and they're also going to be doing a festival, which is Game City, which is our annual gaming festival in Nottingham. So that will be staying on, yeah. So that will be staying on. Mm -hmm. So this is good news. We'll hope that the new management can kind of open it a bit more and get it a bit more engaging with the public and get some profit going.
1: Because <laughs> I love the idea it is a first of its kind in the UK, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, for someone like me who's loved video games all my life to have not actually been able to get into this place in like three years. It seems like, you
2: know, this thing's a very new thing. Yeah. And maybe, you know, retro hasn't really been around for that long, retro gaming. Maybe it's a bit of a false start and maybe they kind of need that to get taken it seriously.
1: Well, we wish the new team well, and it's good that it's been saved as well. I mean, you know, if you're ever up in Nottingham, as we've always said, drop us a little tweet or a message, and we'll, uh, we'll give you the tour of the gaming areas around town.
2: Yeah, I'll take you out for a beer and a, a game of Street Fighter. Yeah, All
1: on Ravi. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you love finding these kind of obscure stories, don't you? Last week, you we had the, the kid that found a mainframe and then got a job at Microsoft. Yeah. This week, a kid in India builds his own PC out of scrap e-waste.
2: Yeah, so <laughs> e-waste is a massive thing, and uh, particularly in developing countries, uh, there's lots of kind of... I've been to India quite a lot, and um, they've had stuff like the way that people extract metal from old monitors and stuff, they just set fire to them and smash them with hammers. It's really
1: bad. Well, and it's that, kind it like of, the metal in CRTs and stuff, I guess, isn't
2: it? Yeah, 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 so all of this kind of old electronics is going there. Well, this guy... Um, He's a 16-year-old kid, mm-hmm. and he's kind of wanted his own computer, and he's been surrounded by e-waste. So he's managed to make this tiny little kind of machine, but it actually looks really slick. If you look at it, it's like a 7-inch monitor, yeah, and it's built onto a small little cube. It actually looks like one of the old
1: Commodore um, SX what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, the Commodore 64 portable, it does actually, yeah, yeah. It does resemble that, and he's it, running Windows XP on it, I can see here as well, and, you know, I, I couldn't have done anything like that when I was 16, I couldn't do it now, <laughs> no, yeah. I mean? it's like, yeah, fair play to the guy, but I think it proves it kind of, if you want something badly enough, you know, you'll, you'll find a way to do it.
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think this is a, a nice little innovative thing, and um, it also says that he kind of uh, planned to drop out of school, as so he had no interests, and then, he suddenly got into computers and uh, building stuff
1: out of e-waste. And now he's global. Well, fair play to the guy. I think that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, if you want to read more about this story, um, we'll shove it in the show notes at com. You know, often we've kind of got, you know... A bit of, you could say, affection for these kind of obscure and failed video game systems, you know. Yeah, you've got nearly all of them out your house.
2: All, I mean, all, your the, ones, all the
1: ones that people consider crap I've got. You yeah. know? I've got a 3DO. <laughs> I've got an Atari Jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, is actually what this story is about, the Atari Jaguar. Now, the problem with the Jag is... Obviously, it wasn't really a big commercial success. And, you know, you always see it making those polls of, like, you know, the top 10 worst video game systems of all time. I have got a soft spot for the jag. But the problem is, collecting games for it is really hard. Because, you know, we've talked about the fact before that I, I know you like, you're trying to get an Amiga CD32 original collection built up. Still hard. <laughs> that is hard, but yeah. getting Jaguar stuff, I mean, there's, there's like a Mario Kart clone on there called Atari Karts. Okay. And they go for about £600 oh for the original cartridges. Wow. You know? And because they're carts,
2: and, and you the, can't play backups then because it's a cart as well. So you've got no chance of playing this
1: game. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, at least on the Amiga CD32, you can burn yourself a CD-ROM. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, you know, obviously, Cricks makes those EverDrive carts that yeah. are really cool. I've got one for the N64, for the Mega Drive, for the Super Nintendo N64. And people have asked him on his forum and that before, will you do one for the Jaguar? And his approach has always been kind of like, oh, it's not popular enough to waste my time on. You know, I wouldn't sell enough. Which is fair enough. But there is a guy on the Atari Age Forum, his name is Saint, with a capital T on the end, and he did a Lynx SD card um, reader recently. And he's now said that he's now working on a jaguar sd card, like an everdrive
2: ah nice that will be good and the links as well i think there are
1: probably less numbers of links around than <laughs> you are probably right yeah. yeah especially working ones yeah so i mean this is a guy that's obviously got a lot of love for stuff atari and he's seen this demand uh, for this and it's now a seven page thread on atari age and he's actually said that he's been working on this some time like secretly and it's pretty much ready but well, um,
2: atari age is definitely the place to talk about it because they've got a massive community there so i'm sure he's probably getting pre-orders already well there was yeah. this
1: thing um it's a skunk board it's called which was the only way to play backup games on the jaguar so what you did is it had like a little bit of ram on there yeah. and you'd hook it up to a pc via your usb port
2: and like flash it yes yeah, so yeah. it'd just be
1: one game at a time and even though you look at them on ebay they go for about like 200 quid because they're quite rare now um but you know this is something that the jaguar community has been crying out for for mm. like about a decade now so it's cool this guy's finally listened and been like, all right, you know, he's got it working and everything already, but he said the Lynx one's kind of taken up most of his time at the moment, so it might be another six to 12 months before it comes out commercially, but...
2: You know, it opens up potential for homebrew, stuff to come out for the Jag as well, yeah. which is
1: great. Because there are there have been a few homebrew games, but they're all on the CD. And obviously the CD add-on is very rare.
2: Yeah, so, and emulators as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, the Jag emulators are not great either. You know, they're still you know, not quite at the stage where they can, you know, replace true hardware. Hmm. But you're right, I mean, you know, when, when these become available, and I think, you know, the price of his Lynx SD card read really, is pretty affordable. So hopefully, you know, will be able to get this for like, you know, less than 100 euros. Ace. So yeah, well, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Very exciting news for us. Uh, yeah, Darren's going to get on that list. <laughs> <he>? <laughs> Look out for my video, no doubt. Yeah. Now, uh, we've got a little announcement from uh, friends of the show, the Lincolnshire Amiga Group. Yeah, we're really disappointed because we wanted to go to this event.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's only an hour down the road, but we're both working. So this is the 10th anniversary of LAG, which is Lincolnshire Amiga Group. And this is the LAG Bash. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I've, into the Mag Bash, which is the Midlands Amiga group, and that was really good years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one's going to be a massive event because they've got Trevor Dickinson, who is the guy from AEON, so he's yep. basically the current owner of the next generation Amiga stuff.
1: Well, he and is Mr. Amiga, isn't he? He's the, Mr. Amiga, He's got the yeah. most impressive Amiga collection I've ever seen. He even walks around, he wears Boing Ball slippers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the tie and everything, yeah. And uh, David Pleasance, the ex-CEO uh, of... Commodore UK, XMD of Commodore MD, UK, wasn't he? That yeah. Was it, yeah,
1: friend of the show, of course. We had him on, didn't we, a few months ago?
2: Oh yeah, and there'll be other podcast people down there. So there'll be uh, Aaron from Aaron from RGDS, yeah, and there'll be quite a few of our crew down there. So uh,
1: we're a bit annoyed that we're missing that one. I know it's coming up on uh, Saturday, first of October. Um, it happens just near Lincoln, a place called uh, Welton by Lincoln. Um, so it's not far from Lincoln Center. I mean, you can get trains and stuff like that as well. So you know, I, I think just having. An active Amiga group that have been going 10 years in 2016. I think awesome because there's not many around anymore.
2: No, no. And uh, I'm sure there will be a good piss-up at the pub afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, David
1: Pleasence is there. You know yeah. the world. <laughs> so uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to uh, sort your tickets and come along to that. Definitely worth going along and seeing the guys there. This will be a proper one for the Amiga nerds. Now, before we get into this week's uh, interview with Scott Miller, um, speaking of Amigas and Ataris and that kind of thing, we've talked about the Tech before.
2: Yeah, so the GoTek is a, a little drive that you can use and you can uh, load stuff off USB and it will read it like a drive sector and then you can change them about and uh, you kind of have to cut your case up. Some, Well, you don't have to, but some people have done awful jobs <laughs> fitting <laughs> yeah, in them into the case. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so this is essentially a USB floppy disk drive emulator. So um, I'm sure you've seen these around before. You, you you plug them into your old machine, like, you know, it can be an old DOS PC, mm. it can be a Commodore Amiga, it can be an Atari ST. You plug it into where the floppy drive used to go and the power in there as well, you know, Size-wise, it's compatible with most drives, and instead of having a floppy disk insert slot, you put a USB key in the front with disk images. And as far as the original machine's concerned, you're loading floppy disks. Yeah. So it's a really handy way, rather than writing, you know, hundreds of old floppies and
2: running know, from room to room, which I do often,
1: <laughs> then getting read errors and all that yeah. on them. Um, it's a really cool way of just having, you know, hundreds and hundreds of disk images. You get like a four gigabyte, you know, USB stick. You can have pretty much all your collection on there. So these have been around for a while now, um, but there is a guy on YouTube. His name is, oh, I'm going to try and pronounce this Gabor Sikos. I <laughs> probably said that completely wrong, but he's posted a video of him controlling a GoTech. Remote controlled with an Android phone. What, so?
2: Well,
1: I don't get it. What, so he can control the gotech I've got no idea quite how he's done this, because I guess there must be some kind of, must be Bluetooth or some kind of con- connectivity or some software Within running. the gotech yeah. that's connecting to the Android. So he's probably made a custom app. What are looking at? So what he had, he's got an Android phone open, and he's got a keypad on there, and he can actually program the numbers of the tracks on the gotech just using his phone, like, you know, wirelessly. That's amazing. So you could basically have it inside the case.
2: You wouldn't even need to stick a USB drive in there. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't need to chop
1: your, your cases up and all that, like you said a moment ago. No, you could put it in a total different section of the case.
2: <laughs> like, so you don't even see
1: it. Yeah, you know? internal. Yeah. yeah, so that is awesome. And actually looking at the GoTech here, I think there is a little, like, you know, wireless receiver that he's put there in the side. Ah, so I think okay. the GoTech does have some, like, GPIO ports you can that stuff to it. Um, yeah. So maybe there'll be this kind of, go tech package that you could get you know yeah well i mean it looks really slick i mean even the graphics and everything of it look it looks professionally made and at the moment he said you know the only detail that's on the video is under testing that's all he said about it so <laughs> two more weeks <laughs> yeah, probably yeah so yeah. if you want to check this video out that'll be in our show notes as well uh, it um, seems to be done through wi-fi i think yeah and the think, video think there, is yeah. receiver there so it's a very very slick solution though so hopefully be re- you know releasing that to everybody else we can all get in on the action nice So thank you so much for checking out episode number 37 of The Retro Hour. Don't forget, if you want to get involved in that competition to win those uh, Commodore 64 Visual Compendium Extended Editions, um, you've got two weeks. Identify that clip of the song that we played a bit earlier. Uh, Which game is it from? The competition is on the front page of theretrohour.com. And we'll be out again next Friday, now, into this week's special guest.
2: Oh, God, it's Scott Miller. I can't believe it. And we talk about such great things as, like, Ken Silverman's engine and... Connection with
1: ID software. Oh, wow, that's so you've good. Got to hear the story of how he met John Romero as well. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's coming up now. Here he is then for the next 45 minutes or so on the Retro Hour. Scott Miller, and we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome this week's special guest. Welcome to the show, Scott Miller. Yeah, no problem at all. Really appreciate you joining us this week. So it would be quite nice to get your story right from the beginning. Let's just go all the way back. What was your first experience with a computer?
0: Um, Boy, I was living in Australia, and um, our school got a computer. There was um, an elective class, and uh, me and a bunch of friends took that class, and uh, I think it was a Wang 2200 that the computer was. It had uh, an attached keyboard, a built-in floppy drive, it had a a printer that worked with it, it had um, a green screen that was something like, I am going to say like 62 letters across, and 12 or 15 lines down, just text, no graphics at all. But um, so I took this class and um, I just didn't understand what computers were about. It was the only class in all my schooling years where I got a D, uh, anything below a C. Wow. I just could not figure it out. And uh, after that class was done and it was, you know, moving on into the, the next semester, um, friends of mine would come to me after school and say, hey, Scott, we're going to go um, hang around at the computer. And uh, you know, after school, and I, I couldn't understand why they'd want to do that. <laughs> I just saw a computer as a bi- as a big calculator, and uh, and then they mentioned, well, we we play games, and I was what? You can play games? So I started taking interest, and um, they were typing in games from from like magazines. Like there was magazines back at the back in the day, like uh, Creative Computing um, and some other, a few other magazines that would like have basic programs that were maybe a page or two pages long mm-hmm. and games like with with titles like UFO or wombat or hunt the wombat just real simple games that you'd type in you'd save it to your disk and then you could play it anyway i started typing in some of these games and and when you type in these things you realize well okay this is a print command this is an input command you know this is a loop command and it's, it doesn't really take a whole lot of brain power to figure out you know the, the basic language and and you start tweaking with these values to see what they do, and pretty soon you start making up your own games. And that's what I, that's what I started doing. And uh, in fact, I got so addicted to it that this computer room had like a window, and I would like unlatch the the, the window so I could sneak in at night. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and stay there until like 2 or 3 in the morning, you know, just me with this green screen glowing on my face deep into the night, just, you know, type in my games, I, you know, I'd write games on, on my you know my paper during the day at school, then I'd go type them in at night and uh, get them working and so on. And I was doing this for several months before I was caught. And so when the caretaker at the school finally caught me, um, you know the next day I had to go into school and I had to go see the principal and and the computer teacher was there and he had my disks and he had printed out all my programs and stuff. and uh, you know the principal was was explaining to me, you know, you know, Scott. This is something you know. You, you broke a major rule here, and this could be you know really bad for you. But then he said, "But I have a I have a, a deal to make with you." And he slid a key across his desk to in front of me, and he said, "If you promise to help the computer teacher whenever he has a question, you can use that computer whenever you want." Because they, they they had looked through all my programming and everything, and, and the computer teacher realized I was doing some pretty advanced stuff for the time. And I hadn't hurt anything, so they decided, you know, I was harmless.
1: You must have been the first kid in history ever to get busted sneaking into school.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, it was uh, that was some, some crazy times back then for me at least. Because, yeah, I was such a, you know, in, I never got in trouble in school. So for me to do something like that, that just tells you, you know, how much the computer bug really had a, had a, had a hold of me. Well, um, what languages were you initially programming in then? I wasn't even aware there was more than one language back then. It was just basic, and uh, it wasn't until this all happened. By the way, when I lived in Australia, I went I, all my high school years. I lived in Australia, and um, when I came back to the United States, you know, I felt like I needed a computer, and so I got um, I got the Commodore sixty four, and then I eventually got the Amiga uh, when it came out, and and then eventually the IBM PC. And really it was only when I started getting into these other computers, especially the Amiga, that I realized there were even other languages. You know, I I knew there was other languages like COBOL and FORTRAN, but these were out-of-date business-only languages, and I didn't care about them. It wasn't really until I got the IBM PC that I started exploring other languages. Um, And when the IBM PC was around in the early 80s, um, uh, there was this company called Borland who was releasing these, these compilers that would do like Pascal and Modula and C, and it like so I, I switched over and started using Turbo Pascal, which was a super nice little integrated editor and compiler, and it was basically just as nice as using Basic because you know with Basic you could you could type something in and then hit run and immediately see your results. Well, it was pretty much the same way with Turbo Pascal. That was kind of that was how this company became so popular is through this integration of editor and compiler, and it made it just so sweet and simple. And that's the language that really got uh, my company, Apogee, kind of off the ground because um, all my original games were written in Pascal. So, yes.
1: Yeah. It's quite interesting you mentioned the, uh, the Commodore Amiga in there as well, because I know it was big in Australia and over here in Europe, but it wasn't really a big system in America, was it, in terms of, you know, commercially successful?
0: Well, it was either that or the Atari ST at the time. I think the Amiga may have come out first, mm-hmm. so that was a factor. But also the, but I was a Commodore person also, um, and so I just wanted to stick with Commodore. And also the Commodore, from all the reviews I was reading back in the day before these computers came out, the Commodore was the more advanced one, or the, I should say the Amiga. Um, you know, it had you know a, a true multi-threaded operating system, and just it just could do a lot of amazing stuff. So, you know, I wanted to have the most advanced thing, so I went with that.
2: Well, um, when was the point uh, that you kind of decided to found Apogee then and turn, turn it into
0: a proper games company? Uh, it's kind of when my hobbies started making a lot of money. I realized you know, I should really give this a full-time shot here and see how it works out. The deal was is that during the 80s, when I was making my games in Turbo Pascal, I had made a couple of adventure games. I had one called Beyond the Titanic. I had one called Supernova. And with these games, I had released the whole game Onto the internet. When I say the internet, I mean like uh, CompuServe and Genie and Delphi and Prodigy and American Online and all the bulletin board systems that existed back then. That was sort of the makeshift version of the internet back in the 80s. So I would release my games online and I would ask people to send me money if they liked them. And I hardly got any money at all. And so when I started working on my series of games called Kingdom Across, Caverns Across, Dungeons Across, what I did was I decided to only release a third. Like I released them in episodes. So with Kingdom Cross, I released that freely to the internet, online through the you know the, through the shareware channels. Um, at the end of Kingdom Cross, I would say, you know, if you like this game, there's two more episodes. You just send me um, fifteen dollars and you'll get you'll get it all. And so I started making a lot of money that way, and I made even more cross games and. Um, It got to the point where for two years I was making about $150,000 a year just through people sending me checks in the mail. And it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy to get someone to send you a check. So I realized that if I actually had a real company and set up an 800 number and start taking credit cards, you know, this could be something even bigger. And then I realized that if I started to um, work with other authors who could even make better games than me because I was by no means the best programmer going around that, you know, using this model I had discovered that seemed to really be working, this shareware model of breaking things into episodes. Um, you know, so I, I kind of really kind of set my mind to finding other game developers that were out there. And I found, uh, you know, I found several, I found like Todd Repogle who, uh, went on to help me, uh, create uh, Duke Nukem eventually. I found John Romero who, and then I helped him form his software, uh, Gave them their initial funding to form that company and make the game Commander Keen. Um, and I found a bunch of other authors. And it's funny that all these people, when I first talked to them, they were extremely skeptical of the idea that you could make money by releasing your game on on the you know freely on into shareware. Those games that you were
2: releasing as well, they were very. It was ANSI and ASCII kind of graphics, weren't <laughs> they? They were very simple.
0: Yeah, originally, originally, but that was like the. That was like the limit of my ability. That's why I started working with other game developers who had, you know, more experience in graphics and so on. And so, you know, the Duke Nukem games, the original two side scrollers that were released in the early '90s, those were uh, EGA. Uh, they had parallax scrolling, uh, and then in Software, when I when I worked with them, Commander Keen, uh, John Carmack had developed a smooth scrolling technique that worked in EGA and then later VGA. Um, that was just truly amazing and matched anything that was happening on the consoles at the time. So, you know, it was really fortunate that I was able to to, to work with them on the commander King games. And then later Wolfenstein. Well, uh, you, you found a rather interesting method of, uh,
2: contacting John Romero by letter.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the story there is that John Romero was employed at a company called Softdisk, and they were a company that released, they had a monthly subscription where you would get, um, A disk full of uh, it had like maybe one or two games on it it had a couple utility programs maybe an educational program it was basically a magazine on disk designed for people who had PCs and uh, John was employed there and he had been releasing a couple of games and I had also had a couple of my games released on soft disk I had a free subscription um, because of that, and I was paying attention to you know the games that were released there, and I really liked the games that John Romero were make, was making on there. And he had a game on there called Dave. I think it was called Dave Dangerous or Dangerous Dave. Yeah. Um, and a few others, and I was thinking, you know, this is exactly the perfect kind of game that you could break up into like three episodes. We could release the first one free on the sh- on Shareware, and you know make a lot of money. And so I, I also knew that Soft Disk was very sort of um, protective of the people that worked there. They didn't want anyone to um, get a job offer for someone else. So to get in touch with John, I couldn't just write him a letter saying, hey John, I've got a, a, a cool deal here for you, uh, get in touch with me, because I knew that his, uh, his mail would be screened. So I had to act like I was a fan. <laughs> and so I sent him several fan letters you know where I said, "Hey, John, I found a bug in your program. If you get in touch with me, I'll tell you where, where it is and stuff." And really, I didn't find a bug in his program, but I thought he might be, you know, intrigued by that to to see what I'd find. And um, weirdly, he never did contact me because of that. But he was pinning his the so-called fan mail up on his wall, and he eventually noticed out of these two or three letters I'd sent him that um, it was all from the same address <laughs> or, the fa- or the same phone number, and so. That finally got him to write me back. And he wrote me this really angry letter saying, you know, what kind of crazy person am I and all this kind of stuff. And it was a whole letter. I wish I would have kept it, but, um, it was his whole letter. And then at the very end, it had his phone number. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I called him up and when I got him on the phone, I said, John, 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 here's the real reason I was writing those letters. I got him to calm down right away. And I explained to him and he goes, ah, okay. So he finally got it. Um, and then he said that just by total coincidence, um, They had very, very recently, like within a week or two, um, had created this smooth scrolling engine, and they had a a demonstration of um, of a Mario game. And so he sent me that disc. I was totally blown away. I said, "Look, you know, this would just do a killing as a shareware game." Like I said, they still didn't believe that you could make money in shareware, and so they said, "You know, they would like to do a game, but they would require some money up front just to to cover their time because." They didn't really feel like it would do well, and I said, "How much? How much do you want?" And I remember John thinking for a little bit, and he said, "Well, can you do four thousand dollars?" And I said, "The check will be written like before I'm done with this call." <laughs> and uh, so I sent him the check. Uh, they sent me this, the design of the game, which was this one pager about Commander Keen. Six months later, the game was done, and it did it did super well in shareware. In fact, it you know, within the first two months, the guys at did software. Um, before they were even, I mean, they were still employed at Softdisk, they decided that um, they were going to quit Softdisk and, you know, make their company a full-time effort also and make more Commander King games, and, you know, the rest is history. Well, I remember at the time, obviously,
1: you know, when Commander King came out, it was a groundbreaking game. Nobody thought that you could do, like, a a really smooth side-scrolling platformer quite like that on the PC, did they? must have been quite a technical achievement.
0: Yeah, it was. um, And I think John Carmack's talked about, you know, apparently he was doing some sort of uh trick within the, the graphic card itself to get that, to get that smooth scrolling technique. Um, and I, I understand the technique. It's not, not that hard once you know it. Um, it's too much to go into detail here, but I mean, it was just really, really clever programming. And, and that's kind of what John's whole career is, is about, you know, uh, is discovering clever little hacks and tricks to really get something out of your PC that no one else thought was possible. Well, um, Duke Nukem was uh, you,
2: you're very kind of cartoony side scroller, and I'd say it was a bit more. It felt more hardcore than Commander Keen, but also uh, a bit more childish.
0: Yeah, I mean, the original Duke Nukem that was actually the third game that um, I had worked on with Todric Pogel. Um, his first two games, no one's going to ever know about. They weren't that good, um, and so he was inspired by. Um, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies at the time. And so he sent me this demo that kind of had this guy jumping around, and he had called the game, you know, he was calling this demo Heavy Metal. And I was like, you know, for one Todd, there's already a movie out there with that name. I, I, you know, I said, you know, why don't we come up with a character name, and, and you know, kind of like what we did with Commander Keen, and you can kind of focus on the character. And so, you know, we thought for a little while, and I remember I came up with the name Duke. I always thought that was a good, strong name. And then about a week later, he came up with the with the second name, which was Nukem. So that's how the name came about. We just kind of, you know, designed the game on the fly back then. You know, no one ever really thought too much ahead about the, the design. You know, like Commander Keen, that was just like a paragraph. I mean, that's all there was to the concept was just one paragraph. You know, with Duke Nukem, we just, we just made these things up as we went. You know, we, we knew we wanted to be sort of a, a futuristic theme and that kind of thing. And. Nothing was really coherent about the design at all in that in that game. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of silly stuff in there, like the energizer bunnies and and stuff like that. So, but, like I said, it was just all made up by the seat of our pants as we were going. There was no no design document that we were following.
1: obviously, after kind of this two d era, um I mean, I still remember vividly seeing the first wolfenstein three d game in um in a shop running on a on a PC and being blown away. It was kind of the first time I'd seen a first-person shooter. What was your reaction when you first saw that engine then?
0: Well, I first saw the engine when I saw um, a game called, it was a tank game um, that they had done for Soft Disk. And there was no texturing to it at all. The polygons were just all flat shaded. You know, the id guys were also still working on Commander King game stuff. But I said, you know, there's got to be a way we can get this kind of, of game into, into share. I think, you know, I, I said, I think it'll be, you know, even a way bigger blockbuster than Commander King games. They were still kind of obligated, these software guys, they were obligated to do several more games with Softdisk under the the termination agreement that they had signed with Softdisk. They had this idea to do a Wolfenstein game. And they said, you know, this is the final game that we need to do with Softdisk. And I said, look, this game is way too good to give to Softdisk. And I said, why don't you let me and my partner, George, make a game for Softdisk? That you know you could release under your name, you could pretend like you guys made it, and we'll take Wolfenstein and put that in the share market. So they agreed to it, and um, so instead of getting um, Wolfenstein, Softdisk got a, a little side-scrolling game called Aqua Venture <laughs> that was uh, wasn't all that great, but it fulfilled the agreement that its software had with Softdisk, and in return, Apogee, my company, got to release Wolfenstein into the world of shareware, and You know, it just exploded.
1: I mean, it's crazy to think that, you know, even now, like 25 years later, you can kind of trace, you know, the first person shooters are still the biggest genre in the world. And I know there were a few before that, but that was really the game that started that entire genre. I mean, at the time, did you realize it was something really special?
0: I I strongly suspected it it would be. Now, you get also there's some more to the story. I mean, Like, for instance, the first iterations of Wolfenstein weren't nearly as cool or promising as the final game turned out to be. Uh, because the original game, the design had a lot of like um, tactical elements that really slowed it down. For instance, you could um, you could sneak up behind an enemy, uh, kill him, um, and then search his body for stuff. And then you could hide his body because if you left his body out and another patrolling guard saw the body, it would bring in a bunch of other guards down on you and stuff. And so there was all this sort of searching and, and moving bodies around and hiding them. And it really slowed things down. And I remember when I was playing these early versions of the game, I was sending its software back notes saying that I don't think this stuff fit with the game. You know, I, I know that for my part, I tried to help get the game more to just being pure action, which is what it ended up being. Um, and at some point, they agreed, and all that sort of strat, uh, strategic stuff was removed from the game. And in my opinion, it made for a much better game.
2: Well, um, after this, there was a, a small engine from a guy called Ken Silverman, who was a, a young man who'd contacted you, and uh, it was Ken's Labyrinth. How did you help Ken develop his engine?
0: Well, he had he had a game engine that kind of was similar to the Wolfstein engine. So, yeah, he had released a little demo game out there called Ken's Labyrinth, and um, I forgot how I got in touch with him or if he got in touch with me, but, you know, we started talking. You know, I knew at that time that his software was going to, go off and do uh, their next big game, Doom, and they were going to self-publish it. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, actually we needed our own engine guy like a Carmack to help us make games. So, Ken Silverman, you know, he was young at the time. I think he was maybe 17 or 18, but, um, you know, you could tell that he was super smart. Uh, I remember like a year or two later, John Carmack even complimenting Ken by saying that, you know, you know, as far as John was concerned, uh, Ken was the the next best 3D coder out there. You know, Ken was a really smart guy. And, you know, we started working with him and, you know, we let him know that it was moving up to their next engine. It was going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be just a 90 degree sort of engine. It was going to be, you know, there was going to be height to it. You can go up and down. You could uh, the walls could be at any angle. There was going to be shadowing. And so Ken thought, well, if you know, if John can do it, then he could do it too. And so he said, you know, Ken set about to make us a competing engine. That's when we started developing Duke 3D. Well, it's great because that engine kind of
2: developed so much, adding like fake looking up and down, translucency and, you know, stack sectors and all of this stuff. (laughs) And it really helped kind of create a new game. And uh, that obviously led to Duke Nukem 3D. Right.
0: Carmack's approach has always been, you know, super lean and super mean with his engines. And it's a, it's an approach that really worked for them. And it's an approach that really works when you're the first one to the party, and which they were would do. Um, when you're second to the party, you have you need to have some more bells and whistles. And that's why we added a lot of stuff to the Duke 3D uh, version of the engine that wasn't in, um, you know, Carmack's engine. You know, we had to have all that other stuff in there, too so that we weren't just like a, a, a you know a full on clone of their game we had to have extras and more or this and you know looking up and down and the stack sectors like you said you know th- these were all things that we we knew we needed in the game to to take it to the next level well around this
1: time obviously you know doom was massively popular as well i mean did you keep in touch with their john romero around this time at all was there any kind of conversations had
0: uh, you know it it really kind of fell off once they started working on, um, on Doom, I remember going over to their offices a couple of times to see what they were working on, and uh, you know, John would give me a really good sort of preview of the game at, you know, as it stood at the time, and you know, it was always super impressive. Um, also around this time, in 1994, Apache started working with um, a newly formed company called Parallax Software, and they're, these are the guys that went on to develop the game Descent which is kind of set in, it was like a full 3D-style game, Six Degree of Freedoms, where you're flying these little spaceships through these corridors, shooting at other spaceships and so on. So this was a game that was going to be our first full 3D game. The two main guys from Parallax, um, Mike Kolos and Matt, uh, no, Matt, no, Matt Toshlog, that's right, Matt Toshlog. Anyway, these guys had come down to Dallas, and I arranged a meeting to go over to see the software offices, and so we went over there for a couple hours, and I remember we all talked to you know both you know John Romero and John Carmack, and it's amazing how forthcoming John Carmack always is with all his like technical innovations with his games and stuff. You know, it just seems like he'll just tell you whatever you want to know. And so Matt and Mike, you know, we learned we all learned just a lot about what they were working on over there at the time, and um, I'm sure it really helped out Matt and Mike in terms of their Descent engine. Anyway. Uh, we never ended up publishing Descent because we sold the rights to Interplay, and they they took it to the retail market. But um, part of this is, you know, it's amazing how back in those days, sort of like the community was very open. Like we would share information with anyone. I know that his software would, um, and it was just it was just all part of the the share we're seeing back in those days. You know, it was it was all very open, and that's why that's why even like the whole modding community emerged because it was always about. You know, set the information free, set the code free. Let people enjoy it like they want.
1: Not signing NDAs all the time, and
0: e- exactly. <laughs> and I suppose that was a, a
2: completely opposite to the consoles, where it was a closed world.
0: True, but I wonder if it was, it was even possible, that, you know, on the consoles to do anything differently. I mean, on the on the PC, it was you know easy. I, like when we re- when we released Duke Nukem Three D, you know, we had we I think we released the editor. Um, as part of the package Um, and uh, we had developed uh, a scripting system to allow people to modify things because it was very obvious to us you want to turn your fan base into you know into a development team of sorts and and it just keeps the project alive it just keeps the game alive if, if people can modify it and extend it and just use it really as a toy well, it's crazy
2: because even with Ken's engine at the moment, people can still modify it and have 24-bit graphics
0: and <laughs> everything on there. It, it truly is amazing. It truly is. 20 years later.
2: Well, with Duke Nukem, it was such a, a change from the original platformer and had <clears throat> some really innovative stuff like hearing the guy's voice behind the shooting and uh, the kind of tongue-in-cheek themes as well that they had in there. Did you enjoy creating that?
0: Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Um, It was really, I mean, a lot of that stuff happened just because, you know, the the specs of the PC kept improving and the sound cards kept improving, um, and that allowed us to add voice and better music and so on. So we were just taking advantage of the fact that, you know, technology kept improving. You know, the 90s was such a wild ride because it seems like every year or two, the specs had doubled. It just opened up a whole new world of things you could do. So, you know, from really the beginning of that sent that that decade, you know, we went from, from Wolfenstein in nineteen ninety two to, you know, Half Life at the end of the decade mm-hmm. uh, you know, with physics gameplay and all kinds of cool things. So it just it just all happened so fast that decade. Well,
1: um, Ravi mentioned that about Duke Nukem's voice, and I think you know today that's kind of as, as iconic as the rest of the character as well, and it's really one of the things that everyone really remembers about you know Duke Nukem 3D. Wh- who was involved in the creation of the voice then, and how did the ideas come about about Duke's voice? Uh,
0: the voice actually didn't enter the game until the final probably five to six months of the game. Um, it was never really planned from the beginning for Duke to say anything. Um, when the voice was first. You know, the idea of using the voice was first first came up. The idea was for just to like um, use his voice to like select a different skill level. Like, you know, we had um, we had four or five different skill levels, and if you selected one, we were going to have Duke actually read it off. I think we were going to have him say something like, "When you start the game, like, you know, let's rock." So these were all uses of the voice outside the actual gameplay. When we when we started hearing uh, Duke's voice. You know, everyone was like, wow, I really like this. Is there a way to put this in the game, too? Um, And so I know we did a couple of test, you know, lines um, of, you know, Duke saying stuff in the game. Just like um, like if he killed killed someone, he might say something. It turns out that was really fun. And so then we started writing lines for, like, specific events, um, you know, like one-timers and stuff. So it, it all kind of happened really sort of last minute. And I think we got maybe about a hundred lines in the game. And I know we were adding lines until the last second because it's like the more we added, the more we liked it. So it was really kind of um, just a happy, fluky thing that that led to him having that voice. But but once once we heard his voice in the game, we knew we were onto something and we wanted to really add to it. You know, it just added so much personality. That's that's where so much of Duke's personality comes from, of course, is is the way he talks and and so on um, and you know everyone on the team was contributing lines you know coming up with stuff so it just came from everywhere but it's, it's one of those things that once it started it just snowballed
1: I imagine around that time that probably sold a lot of PC sound cards as
0: well right right and another thing is that before we added the voice to Duke there was always sort of the mindset with these games that the character on the screen should reflect you the player and um, so there was always a bit of pushback you know, should we make that character it's, you know, someone else that's not really you? And so when we started giving Duke his voice within the game, there were some people who still thought this is this isn't right. I don't feel like I'm playing me anymore. I think enough of us realized that, well, you may not be playing you, but you're playing someone that you might aspire to be. And that's just as important. But it had all the, uh, you know, the really cheeky elements in there
1: as well. Stuff like, you know, uh, strippers, even toilets in that they came too. I mean, was it kind of a, a conscious effort to make Duke like the ultimate macho man at this at this stage? Kind of in an
0: over-the-top over way. And we didn't really ever want anyone to take it too seriously. It was, it was more played for humor. Duke, Duke never purposely says anything funny. But what he says is kind of funny because it's almost too over-the-top to be true. So, yeah, I mean, we we went a lot for humor. You know, it was kind of like, you know, the one-liners that you'd hear Arnold Schwarzenegger say, you know, I'll be back and stuff like that. You know, so you kind of wanted to give Duke that same sort of fun personality.
2: Now, Duke was a massive game, um, very popular everywhere, and uh, it still stuck to that shareware model as well. So was that working out
0: with Duke? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we were still, you know, every game we released, um, even up until... The first Max Payne, which came out, I think, in late 2001, we you know we still had a Shareware version of that too. It was a model that that could, can still totally work. Basically, what a lot of publishers did because they they saw the success that we were having, they basically started releasing demos. That was kind of their version of, of Shareware. They they would release you know a one or two level um, a demo of their of their game.
1: It's still like that today, Um, I guess, isn't it? With like Xbox Live and PSN, you download like, you know, a short, like one level demo, I suppose. Essentially shareware, isn't it? Just online.
0: It's it's really the same concept. Um, Now, we were releasing like a whole one third of our game back in the day, except for when it came to Max Payne, we decided to only release about maybe 15% of the game as shareware. So it really became more like a demo when we did it that way. But it still allowed people to order the game directly from us. And we sold, you know, tens of thousands of copies directly with Max Payne. And with um, with Duke 3D, we probably sold a hundred thousand copies directly to consumers, on top of you know the millions that were sold in stores.
1: Well, you mentioned Max Payne there, and obviously, you know, that was <clears> um, such an atmospheric and intense game. How did the story of Max Payne come about then?
0: Well, um, the the team was uh, was Remedy Entertainment. They were located in Finland, and they had contacted us. They wanted us to take a look at their game that was called High Speed, which was a little top-down 3D racing game. And um, I really liked the game, and I really liked the team. And so we ended up making a deal. We renamed the game to Death Rally and added some fun elements to it. And uh, you know, the game went out there, and it actually did really, really, really well. And um, so Remedy, you know, wanted to do uh, you know more games with us. And so after about three months. After uh, Death rally was, rally was released, they visited me in uh, Dallas, and they they had three game pitches. One was a bit like Homeworld. One was a big, full 3D racing game, and one was a top-down game where you played a detective and you solved, you know, these crime puzzles. I told them I didn't like I didn't really like the space game. I felt like that was too big of a project. I didn't like racing at all. We already we'd already done that. But I did like this game that they were calling Dark Justice, and they wanted to, to do all three games. and And I remember sitting down and saying, "Look, that's going to be a big mistake. You're a growing company. You should really just focus on one game. And I think it should be this Dark Justice game. But I think that we should take a look at this design here and, and do something different. And so I suggested them, you know, let's do a full three D game. Let's create this character. Let's give this character this great backstory. And, and this was this all. This meeting took place like in late 1996." And I remember saying, you know, if we develop this right and and make such a compelling character, there's a good chance that a film will be made out of this. And sure enough, eventually there was one. So they kind of really bought into my ideas and my suggestions. And um, they went back to their offices and they started working on a full 3D game and uh, developing this character. And, you know, we spent months and months and months trying to come with just the right name uh, for the character. And, uh, you know, I remember suggesting Max early on but we could never come up with, with a good last name. And we'd actually trademarked the name Max Heat. That was like the best we could come up with, but I knew it just it just didn't feel right as a name. And um, someone from Remedy sent this big list of about 30 names of last names as suggestions. I remember reading through it, and I came across Payne, P-A-Y-N. It was like, my God, that's the perfect last name. And so we abandoned the Max Heat trademark, we got the Max Payne trademark, and you know that became the name, and uh, yeah, that that project took about three or four years to make. Um, another another huge hit. Well, um, some of the innovations like
2: uh, bullet time that was seen in there just after the Matrix, and uh, some kind of atmospheric stuff like the blood maze. I remember that <laughs> um, they were right. really interesting, and
0: you wouldn't usually expect them in that kind of game. I'm I'm almost sad that the Matrix came out when it did, because we had. All that stuff in there before any of us saw the Matrix. Um, I'd actually come up with the name Bullet Time before the movie came out. The effect came about because I was in Finland. Uh, you know, I would visit them every once in a while to you know to work on the project over there. And I remember being over there, and they were showing me this, these Cold Death animations, to where when Max would shoot a guy, the game would switch into the slow motion mode, and the guy would fly back backwards in slow motion, hit a wall, crumple down. Uh, you know ragdoll physics that really cool, and I was so blown away by this I was like, you know, there's got a way we there's got to be a way we can use this as actual gameplay You know, I remember suggesting what if max had this power, you know, this was you know It felt kind of odd seeing it because it felt like giving max a superpower But I was like, you know, we just got to go with it and and we'll just explain it as you know He has just these ultra quick reaction, you know reflexes and so on And so they added it to the game to where max could activate the slow-motion stuff you know, it just worked out like a miracle. It was just the thing that made the game, you know, from good to completely awesome. And this was probably about a year and a half into development. You know, it wasn't it wasn't an idea that was there at the beginning at all. It was just it was just another one of these amazing happy discoveries that can happen along the way.
1: Well, obviously, around this time, and while all this was going on, um, Duke Nukem Forever started development which of course did become um kind of a legend in the video game industry um over the next decade or so um what's the story with that from your perspective then
0: what's the story would do forever well it ends up being a sad story um <laughs> let's see well that was a project that was primarily run by my partner george and uh And the projects I focused on were Max Payne and then later, you know, Max Payne 2 and then Prey and some other projects that we worked on on the site. And, uh, you know, I just think that with Duke Forever, I think that, um, I think my partner George was under such pressure to really sort of top what we had done with Duke 3D. And then it became a matter of also, topping what other games were doing out there you know as time went on you know better and better games were released by other companies and you know i think the feeling was you know whatever we do with duke 3d it has to be the best thing ever and other other companies were making you know progress on their engines and doing amazing things and every time something really innovative came out from another company uh there was a lot of pressure to include whatever that was into duke forever and it just ended up being you know Development. It was a development money pit, and um, it just, it just, really it all, until about the last two years that the company, that you know, up until like between I think around 2006 and 2008 uh, is is when the company sort of released all the employees at 2008. But, but about the two years up until the 2008, I think we were finally getting on back back on track we had hired a really good producer, uh, Brian Hook. who um, used to work at InSoftware, and now he works at Oculus. Um, he came in as the as producer and really kind of gave the team um, the exact right kind of project management. Uh, you know, George's area was always sort of the creative side of things, and um, we needed someone who was really hardcore on, on project management, and that's what Brian Hook was giving us. So I really think that if the if the company could have stayed together another year or two, that we would have had a really really strong release. Um, but Take Two pulled its funding uh, from us, and um, so the game just it uh, you know we had basically had to do a deal with Gearbox to finish it.
1: So I remember reading, you know, like um, magazines and stuff throughout the 2000s, and it would seem like, you know, that there'd always be a news release and they'd show some new screenshots, mm-hmm. and it was like a complete reboot of the game. I mean, wh- how many times was it was it started from scratch? Several times, then.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was ever really started from scratch, but I mean, there was, you know, we did one engine change very early on. We went from its Quake engine to the Unreal engine, um, and then we kind of basically just rebuilt the Unreal engine over over the years. Yeah, um, you know, every couple of years it had a pretty massive technology upgrade to it, so it would look very different. I mean, that was the problem. You know, it was, you know, if we would have just locked down the engine early on and just built ourselves a game, it would have been fine. But um, uh, I think George wanted to have a game that also had the best engine on the market too when it was released.
2: I also think it would be, uh, it was quite hard to actually satisfy everybody after that time period, (laughs) you know, waiting so long.
0: Right. I mean after after it became like five and six years and we were winning all the vaporware awards, it, it almost became like this vicious cycle of you know, now now we really have to release something great or else people are gonna be disappointed. So it just it just became an impossible task, I think. You know, I don't think that I mean we would have really had to release something of the utmost, highest quality, I think, to to get, you know, high high praise because I think just the fact that we took so long to make the game was gonna really hurt us. And what did you think of the completed product then? Uh, Honestly, not much, not much. You know, we we sold the rights to Gearbox and um, we thought that the game would be, um, I guess, much more improved over the state of the game when Gearbox took it over. That was a bit disappointing that it was basically the same game that we handed to them. and uh, I know that there was a small team called Triptych uh, who was former 3D Realms employees who kind of helped stitch the game together and and get it to where it could be something that could be released. Um, but, you know, they were a small team, and I think it was just too much for them to handle. And, you know, they, they did a really good job given the circumstances, but I was really expecting that... Gearbox would add 10 or 20 of their own people to the project and just really kind of make it a true triple-a release And um, I don't think that happened
1: How much of that kind of um, code from the 2000s and the engines and stuff still exists? then is um so it would be quite interesting to see that stuff. Is it still around somewhere?
0: Uh, you mean is it on like my hard drive or something? Yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that um, I think that, that there's there might be a couple of hard drives in storage somewhere. I don't know I um, it's not something I've seen in, in years, but, I mean, it might be somewhere. I'm not really much of a nostalgic guy. I don't really go back and, and save a lot of this stuff. I probably should, but I don't. But it, it might be somewhere on a hard drive I have in storage or George has on storage. Or, you know, I'm sure some of the coders who worked on the project, I'm sure they probably have, you know, copies of it stored somewhere. Um, so I'm sure something exists. I doubt if it will ever be released, though. Well, um, reaching full circle as well, uh, you've started a new Kickstarter
2: and this is uh, Rad Rogers, which is a return to the old school style Apogee platformer. And um, I I checked out a video of it and we used to play a game on the Amiga called Rough and Tumble and uh, it came out really late in the Amiga's life and it was a really good game and this game looks like it's been influenced by
0: it very strongly. Right. It's it, this is more of an interceptor project. Uh, 3D Realms is involved more as a, a consultant and uh, you know an advisor on the project. Um, but it's it's an interceptor game. You know, these are the guys that did uh, the rise of the tribe reboot, which was really, really well done. Um, and uh, the leader that of Interceptor uh, his name is Fred Schreiber. He he was a big fan of uh Rep and Tumble and a bunch of these other games. And so his idea was to sort of, you know, make a game that reflected sort of the old school sort of play style and, you know, just go back to the old school ways of, of retro shooters and, um, you know, I've played a lot of, of Brad Rogers and it really feels like an old school shooter in lots of ways, but it's done, you know, in a totally modern engine, Unreal Engine uh, 4. Um, it's got lots of fun bells and whistles to it. Uh, it's got great voice acting. You know, John St. John, the voice actor for Duke, uh, he plays uh, Rusty, or, excuse me, Dusty, which is the it's sort of the console come to life that's in the game lisa Manelli. she also had some voice work in the original duke 3d uh and she has a few cameos in in this game she's like the voice of that tree that talks so uh, there's a lot of people that we worked with back in the 90s are you know play a role in this game um yeah so it's a it's sort of an old school retro shooter um yeah i think it's i think it's a really
2: fun game it looks like it's got lots of elements of um you know, the old shooter in it that's like a good platformer, but also from the trailers, um, some of the personalities of the characters in that remind me a lot of Duke Nukem and the kind of cheekiness
0: and uh, the
2: rudeness in it, to be honest.
0: Right, sure, yeah. And that that's going to be something that uh, parents can toggle off if they want to, but, you know, we feel like this is an old school shooter. old school shooter. There's going to be a lot of people in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe in their 50s who, who will give this a try, uh, sort of take them back. On a nostalgic road trip. And you know, for these people, having this kind of humor is probably okay. You know, this game's got a few cool little innovations to like um to really help out with the humor. Dusty, uh, his character is fully aware that he's in a video game. He's fully aware of other video games in existence. And so he breaks the fourth wall a lot by you know referencing other video games, you know, in, in clever little ways and stuff. And um and another way we break the fourth wall is that this game has a Game within a game, to where you'll come across areas of the game where sort of the the universe, or the, we call it the pixelverse, sort of broken down, and only Dusty can go in there and sort of like behind the matrix, into the code, and sort of fix things. And um, you don't really see that in the demos that or the trailers we're releasing yet, but that's a, that's another really cool part of the game. So when can we
1: expect the game out then?
0: Uh, I think we're shooting for late this year. I don't know if, if there's a date yet. Um, you know. Uh, someone's going to depend on this Kickstarter. Um, you know, we hope it funds. If it doesn't, we'll have to scramble to get uh, investment somewhere else. But you know, right now it's tracking to fund pretty easily. But yeah, the goal is is this year for sure.
1: Well, we'll put a link in our show notes as well if people want to follow the Kickstarter. There is still um, a bit of time left on that twenty days at the time of recording. So we look forward awesome. to playing the game. Though we're really excited.
0: Yeah, I I think you'll enjoy it.
1: Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this week. It's been so interesting.
0: Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Yeah, had a great time. Anytime.